0: And justice for all
1: human rights are women's rights change the
0: world <laughs> <laughs> My guest today, Todd Moss, is someone whose work on African trade and development issues I've followed for a very long time. He's a highly respected expert on these issues with the Center for Global Development. And so I was really surprised last year to learn that he published a novel, a thriller, really, something you'd read at the beach. I mean, I was accustomed to reading PDFs and policy briefs from him, but no, this was a page-turning thriller called The Golden Hour. The novel is set largely in Mali, and it's drawn from his experiences working at the State Department's Africa Bureau. So we kick off our conversation discussing the novel and the kind of truths about American foreign policy bureaucracy that can be best elucidated by a work of fiction. We then discuss Todd's interesting career path and have some truly wonky discussions about African stock markets and the World Bank. It's a great conversation, very interesting life story from Todd, and I think you'll enjoy it. If you are into these kind of long conversations about foreign policy with foreign policy thought leaders and luminaries, subscribe to Global Dispatches. If you have not already, go to globaldispatchespodcast.com. You can subscribe on iTunes. We have a free app for your iPhone or Android, and every episode is posted to UN Dispatch. So here it is, my conversation with Todd Moss. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Eslanyan from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting season four, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
1: Yeah, you're not the only one that's surprised. Uh, my wife, my, all my colleagues are all equally surprised. Look, what happened is I left. Uh, I had this great opportunity to work in the State Department 2007-2008. Uh, I came back to the Center for Global Development at the end of 2008 and what we do at the, my, my day job is to try to influence the U.S. government. And I had all these new insights on how the dysfunction inside, uh, inside uh, the State Department, inside the White House, inside DOD, how that was all impacting um, uh, U.S. policy and the ways we could try to influence that. And I was telling all these kind of crazy stories about how, it, how the sausage machine works. And my colleagues encouraged me to write a book about U.S. foreign policy making in the 21st century, all the tensions and trade-offs, the issues, and some of the structural problems of our federal government. So I started an outline for that book, and I just decided that that would be a boring book. It would be boring to write and possibly boring to read, and it would be way more fun to tell it uh, in stories and to tell it fictionally so I could um, really tell a lot of the bits that wouldn't go be able to go into a non-fiction book
0: so that's funny in a way you're able to be more truthful in fiction uh, than you were if, if
1: you were like you know be forced to kind of like name names right it, exactly you know you can make fun of people and people love actually being made fun of uh, if they don't think that it's a personal swipe at them and so when it's fictional people uh, generally take it uh, take it you know much more positively and in fact people who uh, in the government who struggle every day to fight through the bureaucracy or who deal with these problems every day and feel like the rest of the world doesn't know about them. I've gotten such great comments from the book, from people inside state, inside DOD, inside the CIA, uh, who just really love that I you know, gave some public voice and a little window into into their, their lives. People love to read about themselves.
0: So what what's like an example or, or a story of dysfunction in real life that made it into like the fictionalized version in your novel? <laughs>
1: Well the central so the central plot of The Golden Hour is about a coup in the West African nation of Mali. It was loosely based on a real coup in 2008 in Mauritania and the 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 the, the central policy dilemma for the US in reality in Mauritania in 2008 and in my fictional coup in Mali is a tension between promoting democracy, supporting democratically elected allies and working with those governments uh, on national security problems, uh, and what do we do after a coup if their military is still helping us fight uh, al-Qaeda or al-Qaeda-like extremist groups? Do we still work with them to fight terrorists, or do we stick to our our ideological guns and support democracy, even if this is going to uh, maybe harm our national security strategy? And that was really the battle. That um, that was faced. That was the tension faced in Mauritania, and sitting at state, we we had advocated, decided that that we were going to stick to our, our democratic guns, um, and we actually wound up uh, cutting assistance and moving a lot of our military cooperation to other countries. And if you think about the recent coup in Egypt, the United States has made the different uh, a different decision. They've decided to to work with uh, the coup makers because of. Egypt's national security cooperation.
0: Isn't there like a statute on the books, though, that says if a coup happens, the U.S. has to you know suspend its aid? But then
1: the, the question becomes like whether or not you call it a coup. Yeah, that's exactly right. That was that whole what sort of seemed like a ridiculous argument about is this a coup or not a coup in Cairo? Uh, because certain things kick in if a democratically elected government has been uh, overthrown. There are certain kind of exceptions that can be made. Uh, but not not everything can get a waiver, uh, so that's one of these things. That in a way, we've sort of helpfully handcuffed ourselves so that expediency isn't always uh, the easiest option.
0: Um. So, uh, in the book, so how does the book sort of deal with? Wait, first of all, did you say that the book takes place in Mali? Um. And you're writing it probably like in like 2010, and there was yes. a coup in Mali right around then. <laughs> that's,
1: that, that's right. If we, memory what
0: serves. What
1: that, that's exactly right. You know, um, I, I finished writing the first draft of the book because I'd never written a novel before. Uh, and to get, uh, I've written several nonfiction books, but you have to get an agent. And I could not get uh, agents that would take on thrillers set in Africa. They kept saying, you know, Africa's not very commercial, it's not mainstream. You know, most thrillers are set in Eastern Europe or now in the Middle East. Um, and the agents just didn't seem ready to take that on. Uh, uh, but about six weeks after I finished the first draft, Molly did have a real coup, uh, and the agent that finally took me on and sold it to Penguin um, was watching BBC News about French troops fighting terrorists in Mali and thought, wait a minute, I, I've got this novel on my desk about a real coup in Mali, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe commercial uh, fiction is ready for this story. Um, and that was part of the, re- you know, it was terrible news for Molly, uh, that they had this coup, uh, but it was, it was a lucky break for me.
0: <laughs> um, and so how was it received when, when it, when it, was published?
1: Uh, you know, I have gotten amazing feedback. Um, I've, i presented it to a lot of, um, a lot of public policy schools, like the Fletcher school and the Kennedy school, uh, the Bush school. I was supposed to, uh, I was supposed to give a talk at the Clinton school um, just recently, and we got snowed out. So we're going to do that in April. Um, they, they've loved it because it's kind of a fun, you know, it's a thriller that you should read on the beach or on the airplane, but it deals with real foreign policy issues and gives you, you know, some insights into, into how, how this works. Um, and, uh, so they've loved it. I presented it at the state department, uh, at the, you know, I had a really, um, uh, incredible day a couple of weeks ago where I presented the book uh, at the CIA uh, in the afternoon and then got in my car got a very nice reception from the CIA analysts uh, they again like to hear about themselves I mean there's several CIA um, uh, characters in the book and then I got in my car and drove out to a Quaker school in rural Maryland and presented it there uh, and they also loved it I think for lots of different reasons Um but Uh, You know, a book that can appeal to to Quakers and CIA analysts, uh, I think, is something that uh, can appeal to anybody. I love it. I
0: I, I, I'm like (laughs) embarrassed to admit I haven't I don't think I've read a novel since 2004 since oh, Philip, no. <laughs> since Philip Roth's plot against America uh, which which I read way back when and I just you know I I I got it. I think it makes me like a less interesting person and your book sounds fascinating so <laughs> I got it.
1: I think it might be the, uh what teases me back into into novel reading well you know there's a, you know I was partly inspired by some of the David Ignatius novels which um are about uh US espionage and they're really terrific on some of the the policy dilemmas. You know, David Ignatius obviously knows knows a lot about how Washington mm-hmm. works. And then, you know, the best book I've ever read about the ridiculousness of the World Bank, uh, and I've worked at the World Bank, so I know how ridiculous it can be, is a novel called uh, Last Orders uh, at Harrods by Michael Holman. Uh, so sometimes novels can give you a, a more accessible truth than a nonfiction books. So I'd encourage you to okay. try some.
0: I'm, I'm coming back. Uh, you, you've convinced <laughs> me. Um, OK, so let's uh, switch gears a little bit. Um, you know, Again, so I've, I've known you uh, not through your novels, but through your wonky analysis of, of right. international development in Western Africa. Um, and I just kind of want to trace uh, you know, how, how you got there. So where, where are you from? Where Were you born? Uh, how did you kind of get interest, interested in these issues?
1: Yeah, you know, so uh, uh, when I look back on how I got to where I am, it's just been a whole series of accidents. I think that's how how life usually works. Uh, look, I was a suburban middle class kid from uh, Rochester, New York, no connection whatsoever to Africa. Uh, I was a college kid at, at Tufts in Boston. Ah, and, I went there. What year were you Oh, in? you did. Yes. And, uh, I graduated in 92.
0: Okay, so uh, uh, a decade a, a decade before I. <laughs> um, but it was so, great. Did you do the, the IR program there?
1: Uh, I did the political science and African mm-hmm. studies. And, you know, my for my junior year abroad, I wanted to go somewhere fun. Uh, and a lot of my friends were going to London, which was kind of cool. But I thought, let me go somewhere uh uh so I split my junior year between London. I did a semester in London and a semester in Zimbabwe. Oh
0: and, wow. uh, Zimbabwe in in what year like n- the mid this was nineties, so. Uh, ninety so yeah, 90. um so, so how far into Mugabe at that point? It wasn't it like what was he up to
1: at the time? Yeah, he'd been in ten he'd been in nine nine or just a little over nine years he was in his tenth year. Was and he still
0: kind of beloved at that point?
1: He was still, you know, it was still sort of it was the tail end of the honeymoon. Uh, You know, things were still working pretty well. Uh, You started to hear some grumbles, but you know, it was still a period where where things were quite hopeful. The infrastructure was still pretty sound, Um, and uh, you know, people were still quite hopeful. Um, I went back, uh, so I got completely hooked. You know, that one semester, I got I was an Africa junkie pretty much from day one. And a few days after I graduated from Tufts, I got on a plane, went right back to Harare. Um, and that was in the middle of a drought. Ninety two was a drought year. And it was really the beginning sort of the beginning of, of people openly grumbling about things going badly. Was it the um,
0: pressure I, of the drought that exposed like weaknesses in Mugabe's sort of operations?
1: I think it was where you started to see, you know the lack uh, the lack of investment in uh, in, in things like uh, in, in things like infrastructure. You started to see the corruption start to creep in. Some of these sort of uh, erratic policy decisions started to happen. Uh, then and um, did you see like
0: a noticeable difference yourself between the, the time you were there and, and a couple
1: years later? Well, you know, when you're a college student and you go there, you, you get your hand held to you, your hand, your hand is, is held, and you got kind of get a bit of a rose colored view. You know, you're taken around, you're sort of told things, you're you know, the, dealing with day to day life, you don't have to deal with any of that. You're, you're a college student on a program. When you go, I went back. You know, less than two years later, I I had to find my own housing, make my own way around, deal with the bureaucracy myself. And you could really see that there was there was a huge difference. Um, And I can't imagine that that much had deteriorated in two years. I think a lot of it was just uh, trying to um, you know work and travel in a in a place on your own. Um, And under what circumstances did you go? Like, did you have a job? Did you have a? Well, yeah, I initially went uh, to work uh, for an NGO. Uh, that was working in the eastern part of the country. So the, the, the war was raging in Mozambique and a lot of the Renamo uh, fighters were coming over into on the Zimbabwean side of the border which is relatively wealthier uh, and attacking villages. And so this NGO was helping to rebuild villages that were attacked along the, uh, along the, in Manikaland along the Mozambican border. Uh, and I had met them when I was a student um, in 90. So I go back two years later and Just as I arrive, uh, Mozambique has signed a peace deal, and the attacks essentially ceased. So after about six or eight months in Zim, there really wasn't much work left to do. Uh, So I took that opportunity. I was there with my then-girlfriend, now wife, uh, and we backpacked uh, all the way down from Zimbabwe, all the way down to Cape Town, and then all the way back up uh, to Kenya and Uganda, uh, overland. So we got, uh, we, we got a real, um, you know, that, that was like a dream come true for an Africa junkie, uh, and it, it really sealed me working on Africa for the rest of my professional career.
0: Um, so how did you, uh, you know, take the next steps to, like, actually
1: work on Africa? Uh, I did some, f- I think, fairly typical things is that, that I went to grad school. I did a master's in London. Um, and then I came to Washington. I worked uh, for um, a think tank that, uh, called the Overseas Development Council, um, which has since closed. Uh, but I got a real taste of what the policy research community was like. Uh, and then I went back to the UK to do my PhD uh, at SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies. And then I was teaching, at, when I finished, I was teaching at London School of Economics, and I got an opportunity to go to the World Bank. Um, wow. when, so
0: when when I were was, you at LSE?
1: I was at LSE in two thousand one, two thousand two.
0: Oh yeah, I was there then. I did my Tufts uh, year, junior year at LSE. Oh, LSA. right,
1: right. I should so, have taken uh, your class. I was in the Development Studies Institute. <laughs> oh, of course, yeah. Um, and I then, was studying
0: like religion at the time. I was I was a comparative religion major, so I was deep into like the sociology of religion and those sorts of things.
1: Right. Well, uh-huh. you know, L- a little is, heady. Uh, <laughs> London is great. I mean, there's so many people interested in Africa. Got so many yeah. historical and business connections. Just a real center for for um, you know academic studies on the continent. It was well, great can we
0: back up though? What of, like, was your PhD focus?
1: Uh, so this, you know, I think all PhDs are on somewhat random topics. So I was really interested in financial market development. So I wrote about the development of stock markets in Africa, with a focus largely on the Ghana Stock Exchange. Asking why did Ghana set up a stock exchange? What was what what were they trying to accomplish? Um, so looking at looking at that and when know, stock did Ghana exchange. set up a stock exchange? And, and what were they trying to accomplish? In, in eighty nine ninety, mm-hmm. uh, and they were trying to you know there were some there were some real economic reasons they were trying to create vehicles for uh, Ghanaian companies to tap uh, domestic and international capital. But my main conclusion was that it was an important. Sort of international signal that having a stock exchange meant you were a real country. It's kind of like having a national airline or uh, you know something like that—an important signal to the world that you are that you had arrived, even if the stock exchange was fairly tiny and there's very little trading actually going on.
0: And I guess is there a correlation between Ghana's you know relative political stability or not relative, its political stability, you know, um, and you know the fact that it has an exchange, whereas less stable countries in in the region, you know, like Cote d'Ivoire or something. I, I don't know if Cote d'Ivoire has or doesn't have yeah, one. Yeah, no, but Cote
1: d'Ivoire does have one. Okay. So there there are uh, 19 or 20 different stock exchanges around uh, around the continent. Uh, they've been in, you know, Joburg since the 19th century, uh, you know, pre-World War Two, They were in Kenya and Zimbabwe. Uh, so, you know, there there was actually a, a culture, partially because of British colonialism, uh, of having stock exchanges. Um, and uh, now you know they're kind of sprouting up all over. Uganda has one. Tanzania, uh, Zambia, Malawi, um, uh, Cote d'Ivoire, uh, Nigeria has a has a pretty big one actually. Um, and uh, you, you know, no people are generally these are generally developing in places where there's uh, there's some business interest, um, and it's also it was it was very linked to privatization because. Uh, when governments were trying to sell, say, a state-owned bank, one of the ways things that they would do is they would list shares on their own local exchange, and that would allow regular citizens to buy small blocks. Um, uh, and you know, countries will still do this as they're as they're selling off state assets. They'll make sure that that shares are reserved for uh, smallholders on the local market, and that's a good way to kind of democratize uh, the economy. How well
0: do these markets function? I mean, are there the equivalent of like a Ghanaian SEC um, yep. that can kind of patrol this these markets? Yep. And, okay. Yeah, they they all
1: have the uh, they have they all have the sort of infrastructure that you would recognize. Some of them work better than others. You know, the Botswana Stock Exchange, as you might guess, uh, works fantastically well, incredibly efficient. Um, Botswana, know, for those who
0: don't know, is is like a l- firmly middle income country.
1: It is very you know it's very small, but but very, very well run. Uh, You know, I actually, as part of my research, I, in a group with a couple of other friends, we formed a little investment club and we invested in six or seven markets. Uh, And after 11 years, we'd done uh, an average of more than 11% per year in U.S. dollar terms. So we actually did pretty well, largely just taking a guess at what we thought would, would be the best companies in these different markets, but we learned a lot. Uh, and I actually uh, kept my holdings in Botswana because it, uh, uh, it, it, was, it was working so well. Um, so they actually do fairly well. They're not super liquid. Uh, it's not that easy for an individual to trade. But we're, you know, there are a number of funds for institutional investors that would like to put, put some money in there. And, and smallholders can trade. You could, you could go online and open an account in, uh, in Botswana now yeah. if you wanted.
0: So so how long were you in London for? And I'm sorry I didn't take your class at LSE at the
1: time. <laughs> uh well uh, all, all told uh, about five and a half years. So um uh you know, a mix of grad school and work.
0: hmm And where were you where were you working
1: in London beyond uh, uh or just like at LSE itself? Uh, well, while I was a grad student, I was in, I was also working at the Economist Intelligence Unit, you know, the, the, yeah. the EIU reports. I was one of the editors and analysts for them uh, working on the Sub-Saharan Africa team. Uh, I did that for a couple of years. Uh, and then when I finished my PhD, I, that was when I went and uh, was a lecturer at LSE. Um, so when did you uh, make it back to the USA? Uh, so that was 2002 uh, when I had the, the – the The opportunity at the World Bank. I went and worked on a, a strategy project for the Africa region there, and that was fantastic. I really learned how the World Bank works, and I just got a great great insight into uh, into the multilateral development banks. Um, but at the same time, there was this cool new think tank starting called the Center for Global Development, uh, and that sounded really exciting for somebody uh, interested in pushing research and new ideas and so after a little over a year at the bank, I I moved over to the Center for Global Development. So uh, what did you – I guess
0: earlier you kind of made um, sly reference to dysfunction at the World Bank. Yeah. Um, What – I guess what did your time there teach you about how the World Bank functions or, or doesn't function or like when can the World Bank
1: function well? Well, I think the World Bank's actually pretty good at what it does. It's just that, as in any large bureaucracy, it starts to develop. You know, it has its own language that's virtually unintelligible from the outside. Uh, like you know what? My, what would I'm, be a I'm, good I'm, example of that? Well, on of... my first day that I was there, somebody handed me uh, a book that was called tw- it was a it was a packet, and it said 20,000 acronyms uh, used by the World Bank. And then I was reading some strategy documents and the first three acronyms that I didn't recognize, uh, I looked, tried to look them up and they weren't even in, they didn't even make the 20,000 list. (laughs) So, uh, you know, uh, it's just that it starts to develop its own sort of subculture and its own, own dynamics that can be quite divorced from the outside world. And sometimes, and this is the reference to the Michael Holman novel, can be very, um, uh, 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 at arm's length from what's really going on in a country uh, and sometimes you can get a flavor for that if the World Bank is telling you wonderful things going on in a particular place and then you go there and you realize wait a minute there's something maybe not, not so good going on here uh, or they don't, don't exactly have the, have the clear picture.
0: Can I just ask you um, maybe, like, a more broad question uh, about the World Bank? So, you know, in, like, the late 90s and early 2000s, among, like, liberals particularly, like, the World Bank and the IMF were, like, the great evils. Yeah. Um, now, like, we liberals, like, love the World Bank, love the yeah. um, the World Bank <laughs> particularly, but also the yeah. IMF, uh, you know, to, to a certain extent, as vehicles for, like, uplifting the world's downtrodden. Like, what, what changed?
1: Uh, so you, you Did the know, World
0: Bank change or did like it, liberal the, consciousness change or both? Well, you
1: no, know, I think the bank changed. It both changed the way that it interacted with non-governmental organizations and its critics and it also changed the way it talked about what it was doing. So in the old days, it used to be relatively secretive. It was working on large projects. It was kind of resistant to criticism and it was working – it was essentially a bank for – Member governments to borrow for big projects, um, and some of those projects didn't work out so well. The bank was kind of um, uh, maybe not as responsive as it should have been to some of the problems that were out there, and so you certainly had, say, the environmental or human rights communities extremely uh, uh, hostile toward toward the bank, um, and. Under Jim Wolfenson, who was uh, president there for from, uh, I think, 95 to 2005, he really opened the bank up uh, and tried to embrace the critics and tried to uh, have the bank adapt. So, and, and in some ways, I think the bank has probably gone too far in that direction um, in that it's got so many safeguards and there are so many... Uh, so many hoops that bank projects jump through that a lot of projects that can be good um, on you know on the whole are not getting through the system because uh, outside groups are able to block that um, I, I can give you an example but there, yeah. there, there, there's a fantastic book by Sebastian Malaby about the Wolfenson uh, period at the bank and he, he he's very eloquent um, in, in explaining this
0: um, you know I one remember, there- um I, I just remember like yeah. Jim Kim, I saw him give a speech a couple months ago, and you know he he referenced the fact that like ten years ago or, or fifteen years ago he was protesting the world bank, and now he's <laughs> Right. President of the World Bank. <laughs>
1: right. I mean, there are still there are still people that believe if, if you believe that capitalism is fundamentally bad for the sure for the world's poor, you're still not going to be enamored with the World Bank. The bank oh yeah, there are un- always like bank. little
0: protests right. around you know the the World Bank and IMF right. annual meeting, but it's nothing like it
1: was before. And it yeah. You know. No, not no, not at all. Um, But, you know, one of the examples today is that the Ethiopian government, um, you know, Ethiopia has massive electricity shortages. The economy is growing. They really need a lot of electricity. There was a dam called Gibe that the Ethiopians wanted to build. And there's a huge apparatus of, um, of, uh, of safeguards, particularly for large hydroelectric power dams. Um, and this was actually mostly fought at the African Development Bank, which is the sort of r- African, uh, it's, it's separate from the World Bank, but it's a lot like the World Bank, just only for Africa. Um, and, uh, you know, outside NGOs were able to block uh, the African Development Bank uh, from investing in this Gibe Dam because they were worried that the, the plan that the bank had put in place to deal with environmental and resettlement effects wasn't going to be good enough. Um, And actually, the the plan that the African Development Bank had put together was pretty close to the gold standard uh, that you could expect for for these kinds of efforts. But but the activists were just still not having it, and they wound up blocking uh, the African Development Bank's uh, investment there. So what did the Ethiopian government do? Uh, they turned to the Chinese government and they built the dam anyway, with absolutely none of the environmental or social safeguards uh, that people had been pushing for. Uh, but a lot of groups took that as a as a victory because they blocked the African Development Bank. But if you were, you know, an Ethiopian citizen, you got uh, a much worse deal because none of those pieces that had been in place uh, were there in the Chinese deal. So that's just one uh, one example of some of the lingering. Uh, problems, you know, at the MDBs. It's sort of a downside cost of being overly risk averse uh, when you've got a lot of interest groups to manage.
0: Um, so, when did you end up at the uh, Center for Global Development? And I should say, you know, if you're tuning in uh, now to the podcast for the first time, you should check out my interview with uh, Nancy Birdsall. We
1: talk about like the
0: formation of the uh, Center for
1: Global Development, right? So, I came. I came just. Uh, just about a year after the, the center was formed, I, I came in, in 2003, um, and I was working on, uh, on a whole host of U.S.-Africa-related issues. Uh, and an interesting um, – the way I wound up at the State Department was one of my projects at the center – this is, a, again, another example of just random accidents uh, impacting your career. Um, uh, I was working on uh, Nigerian debt. Uh, The Nigerians were trying to negotiate with the Paris Club, and we had done some analysis to help try to move the negotiations along. And through that discussion, I got to know the U.S. Treasury uh, lead on Nigerian debt negotiations, a guy named Bobby Pittman. Uh, And then um, I just got to know him through through the Nigeria work. And then he wound up moving to the State Department a little while later, and then he got promoted to the White House after that. And uh, Jendai Frazier, the assistant secretary, said, all right, Bobby, you know, who, who am I going to replace you with? And he said, oh, I, I think I know this. You know, she said, I want I a, you know, I want a guy who knows econ, kind of nerdy, wonky guy. And he said, I know, I know this guy. I worked on Nigeria with him. So I went in, had an interview, and that's how I wound up at State. So I took I, leave. Okay. I took leave from the center. Uh, to go to state uh, uh, until the end of the Bush administration And what were
0: you like a, a a das a deputy assistant yes. secretary in exactly. in the
1: African bureau yes in the African what was your like, bureau? like your
0: official like what was your remit
1: so I had two portfolios as uh, uh, I had uh, the all the I had the economic policy team and I had the West Africa team so for West Africa that's sixteen countries basically Nigeria Niger and everything to the west
0: mm-hmm um I you know so this is the Bush era this is uh you know 2003 invasion of Iraq like how like you know at the time um you know looking back that was like the dominant feature of US foreign policy was the US invasion and occupation of Iraq did you know you know that you know policy priority did 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 America's invasion and occupation of Iraq have knock on effects on America's relationship or the Bush administration's relationship with Africa, you know, as your as it was in your portfolio, like how did the Iraq fiasco, which it turned out to yeah. be, affect uh, U.S. Africa relations in any way?
1: It's a good question. So keep in mind, I, I didn't go into the administration Bush administration until '07, early '07. Mm-hmm. So it was you know you were following start to right yeah. So it had, I mean, the 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 negative the negative side was that it it helped to to essentially spoil our. It was one of the factors that made our relationship with South Africa incredibly difficult and fraught. Um, That relationship remains difficult and fraught under the Obama administration. Uh, So, you know, I don't think it's only Iraq. Uh, It certainly wasn't only Iraq, but it was just one of those factors. What are Uh, those
0: sources of tensions uh, today between South Africa and the United
1: States? You know, we, (laughs) the South Africans, you know, the sources of tension actually have very little to do with Africa. They have to do with Iran, China, uh, other areas where, frankly, the South Africans have taken every opportunity to try to show, to, you know, stick their finger in the eye of the United States to kind of show their uh, their G77 credentials. It's it's actually quite puzzling for a country that's trying to show itself to be a, a regional and global leader uh, and to kind of pick these crazy fights, even over something like Cote d'Ivoire where South Africans found themselves on the wrong side. Um, you know, South Africans extremely unhelpful uh, in the early years uh, in the fight against AIDS um, uh, Iran, uh, you know, the South Africans refused a visa to the Dalai Lama. You know, just some really kind of bizarre uh, decisions coming out of Pretoria uh, that have just made it very difficult for the U.S. and South Africa to to cooperate on a number of issues where they have a lot of interest that they should be uh, they should be working on together. Um, but what I do think did. What was interesting about the Bush administration is that nobody expected George W. Bush uh, to be in, uh, to make Africa uh, part of his legacy, and I think he surprised everybody. Uh, you know, he launched PEPFAR, the big AIDS program. He launched the Millennium Challenge Corporation. He launched the President's Malaria Initiative. He stood up the Africa Command of the U.S. military, and he really spent a lot of time and personal effort on Africa. And what that did was that really empowered the people in the administration working on Africa to try to get a lot of stuff done. And I certainly felt that. So I came in at the end of the administration and my, my immediate boss, Jendai Frazier, was very clear, we're here to get stuff done. The president has an agenda that he would like, you know, we, we, you know, we had a couple of top priorities in West Africa, and this is what you're here to do uh, in the short time that, that, that we're, in, we're in office. Um, and that's a really, you know, fantastic uh, place to be, especially as an outsider coming in. The last thing you want to do, especially at the end of an administration, is come in and just kind of, uh, you know, hold things together. That's kind of boring for an outsider. So uh, what were your big, big priorities then yeah, so for the West big Africa? Pri- the, the, the big priority really was, was consolidating the peace in Liberia. Uh, the U.S. had made a big investment in um, in finding a peaceful resolution to the civil war in Liberia and helping to reconstruct that country. Uh, we were rebuilding the Liberian armed forces from scratch, uh, and uh, uh, so so get, helping uh, ensure that Liberia stayed on track was was a was a very very clear priority. President it- Sirleaf had a personal relationship with President Bush. Um, and then the other two, sort of other. Well, two on Liberia, troops, though, and, and sure. I think
0: probably to his credit, right? Like Bush, um, by you know, I'm, I'm trying to remember the story, but I think in like 2003 there was a troop movements. Troops were on their way to Iraq, but he sort of diverted some troops and stationed them on an aircraft carrier, like outside Monrovia, right? Am I getting this right? And and by doing so, helped to like quash uh, you know the, the the civil war that was ongoing there.
1: Yeah, I don't remember the exact timing, but they definitely stationed a a large U.S. naval vessel off the coast of Liberia within sight of the capital uh, as a it. kind of uh, sort of warning that the U.S. was here and they weren't going to allow things to blow up. Um, and it was, um, you know, I'm I'm sure that if things had blown up, the U.S. would have would have uh, sent uh, troops and uh, you know in. Uh, on t- onto shore, but that wasn't necessary. Just parking a big American vessel uh, did, to the, do the, did trick. the trick. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, but you know, I think the U.S. you know has made a commitment to Liberia. We have a special relationship with that country that goes back to the middle of the 19th century, the founding of that country, uh, intimately linked with U.S. history. Uh, and we, you know, it was really an embarrassment, I think, for for the United States that Liberia uh, had fallen into such a terrible, uh, terrible state. Uh, So we'd made a a big commitment, not uh, you know, to keep that on track. So that was that was a clear clear priority, Uh, and I think we did we did pretty well. And looking at Liberia's recovery, even today, even in the face of Ebola, uh, it's actually uh, not in in fairly good shape. Certainly better shape than I think anybody could have reasonably expected. uh, I mean, I visited in two thousand eight.
0: Yeah, I visited two thousand eight, and then again in two thousand and. Twelve maybe, and the difference was just tremendous. Obviously, yeah. I haven't visited in the in the wake of, of the Ebola outbreak, but right. Um, right, just like in terms of like basic so, infrastructure, yeah, like it was it was almost night and day in just those four years.
1: Yeah, so so that was a top priority. Uh, having a positive relationship with Nigeria, the the you know the big power in the region, was also uh, important. We did, uh, I'd say, we did mediocre at that. Um, Obviously, an important country. We have national security and economic interests there, uh, and a kind of a positive but sometimes difficult relationship. Um, And then the third priority, which where I think we really did not do well, uh, which was to try to counter uh, the spread of extremist groups Uh, and the coup in Mali and, you know, the rise of Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb and Boko Haram and groups like that, uh, I think, point. To the fact that we, you know, we did not, we did not do uh, every, you know, we did not do very well in in helping to to squash that. Uh, so, I'm not sure what we exactly we could have done differently, but you know, it's clearly a problem that had been growing for for a little while.
0: Well, so if you talk to, uh, and I wonder, you know, I have not if you, I have talked to you know experts in Nigeria and and, and the region who, you know, in particular with regards to Boko Haram, like point to you know, political dysfunction and corruption in Nigeria as like the root cause of Boko Haram's grievances and the reason that it's able to, you know, sustain itself uh, to a certain extent. Um, And I'm wondering, you know, what power does an outside force like the United States have to try and, you know, get countries to like sort of reform institutionally in ways that promote good governance and reduce... The the appeal of groups like Boko Haram.
1: Yeah, uh, well, first of all, our tools are extremely limited. I mean, really, what we can do is support governments that are that are trying to do things that we think are positive. Um, and when governments are doing things that we don't think are particularly constructive, our ability to really influence them um, is, you know, is, I think we should be honest is is pretty is pretty uh, scarce. Uh, so, you know, Nigeria, very proud, very capable nation, uh, does not want uh, outsiders getting overly involved in what they see as uh, their own domestic business. Um, clearly, once Boko Haram, you know, there was no, there, there was no Boko Haram when I, when I was there, so I, I don't have any great insights on that, but clearly once Boko Haram became a regional uh, threat, Uh, It it ceases to be a domestic issue, uh, and the region and the international community gets involved. Um, Same with uh, some of the groups in the Sahel, um, where it's clear that the collapse of the Gaddafi regime, problems in Algeria uh, are what uh, spilled over into uh, Mali and, and other neighboring countries and created this problem. Uh, and this is where the international community, including the United States, uh, can play a role um, in both helping to contain those threats, but also helping to mitigate some of these underlying factors. Um, I- I'm, not totally, I'm, not, I- I'm not entirely convinced that it's uh, you know, corruption and misgovernance as the root causes of Boko Haram. There's corruption and misgovernance in a lot of places uh, that don't have anything... As uh, frightening and virulent as uh, as Boko Haram, so you've got a you you've got a number of contributing factors there.
0: Um. So I want to ask you. You know, you were in the tail end of the Bush administration. Obama comes. You're an Africanist, obviously. Obama comes in. Uh, obviously, has has you know connection, a very deep connection uh, to Africa. And I, you know, I was in. I guess it must have been like Ethiopia, It was Ethiopia, maybe like a few weeks after the U.S. election, after Obama had been. Um, you know, elected, but before he took office. And there was just like this fearing feeling of overwhelming optimism and hope that like, not only is like Obama, you know, the president of the United States, but he's kind of like our leader too. I remember even I I spoke, I had a chance to interview the head of the African union at the time, John Ping, who made some remark that stuck with me. He said something like there are six regions, the African union, the sixth is the diaspora. President Obama is our like president too. Something along those lines. Like, I'm wondering, did you have those exceedingly high expectations? Uh, And how, I guess, would you, you know, judge, you know, the Obama administration's relationship to Africa in light of that, like those just exceedingly high expectations?
1: Well, look, I mean, I think Obama came into power at a time where he had a really fantastic foundation. You know, the Clinton administration had put trade at the heart of U.S.-Africa relations, they would passed the AGOA, the African Growth and Opportunity Act legislation, which is still with us today. President Bush had done PEPFAR, MCC, the other, the other programs I mentioned, and had really given Africa a lot of attention. And the Obama camp had said, you know, we're going we're gonna to build on this foundation, we're going to take U.S.-Africa relationship to the next level, and the expectations were tremendous. Because of that, and because of the president's own uh, connection to, to Kenya, uh, and you know, the first term fell with a complete thud. Uh, Obama's, President Obama, spent less than twenty four hours in, on the continent in his entire first term. He launched three initiatives. Uh, he launched a clean uh, clean energy in Africa initiative that was announced but never nothing ever happened. Launched a global health initiative. Which was supposed to turn the AIDS initiative into a health systems effort that was abandoned by the end of the first term, and he launched a food security initiative called Feed the Future, which took a while to get going and it's still kind of limping along. It's it, it, it's okay. I doubt it's going to be. We're going to be talking about Feed the Future in ten years in the same way we're still talking about AGOA and PEPFAR. Um, so it was it was really you know a huge disappointment. I certainly heard from a lot of African colleagues and in African capitals, just an, you know, they almost couldn't believe it. They felt betrayed by the administration. Um, I've got a piece in foreign affairs that they called missing in Africa, which was about the Obama administration's sort of missed opportunity of the first, the first term. Um, the good news is that the second term has been much, much better. He had a real trip to Africa. Uh, he, uh, he launched something called, uh, power Africa, which is a, an effort by the US government to boost a, uh, electricity on the continent. And this was, you know, unlike the other initiatives, which were kind of cooked up by White House staff, uh, this one was a result of uh, collaboration and listening to what the what our African partners actually wanted from the United States, which was help turning the lights on. Uh, and, uh, and he had the Africa Summit last summer. Uh, and the Africa Summit was all about business and national security partnership. And that's exactly what uh, African countries were hoping for in the first term. So it came a little late, but uh, so far, you know, the second term, it's been a huge, huge improvement. Uh, so we're not right, so so out, out of time, part but, part of part time part but I wanted to give you a chance, chance plug. to plug your new novel, 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 right? You have a sequel sequel coming out. coming is out, right? is that right? Uh, that's right. So I, it's the uh Judd Riker series has four books. I'm on contract for four books. So the second book is called Minute Zero. Uh, it's about an election in Zimbabwe that's uh, going bad, um, and uh, Minute Zero will be out in September. Uh, I'm just putting the finishing touches on book three, uh, which doesn't have a title yet, but it's about uh, Cuba and the politics of South Florida. So I've taken the, the, the main characters out of Africa for, for the third book. And then the fourth book, which won't be out till 2017, uh, will go back to West Africa uh, probably Nigeria and Ghana.
0: No, wow. And, and so is the main character a
1: uh, like deputy
0: assistant secretary of state or something?
1: So f- first of all, I should say it's not me. <laughs> uh, I drew on some of my experiences for some of the, the things that the, main, that the main character, Judd Riker, goes through. But he is a college professor at Amherst, uh, and he comes up with a theory based on some of his number crunching that uh, that if the United States reacts quickly it has a greater chance of success uh, after a coup uh, and that's the golden hour uh, that comes from uh, real term in emergency medicine uh, when I was in Boston I used to drive an ambulance and they always talked about the golden hour uh, and so he applies this and he is the he's made through an accident the head of a new unit at the State Department called the crisis reaction unit um, or S slash C R U, not S slash see exactly. I actually presented the book. I had a book talk with the S C R S staff, and uh, I should say, for, they, for, they, yeah, for for people they, who
0: don't know, that's the uh, post conflict stabilization branch of the State right, Department. That's right, Long suffering.
1: <laughs> Long summer. And I, I, I based it largely on, on the SCRS experience, which is a good idea, but it's had a hard time being inserted into a bureaucracy and it wound up, fi- it finds itself sometimes at odds with the regional and functional bureaus. And that's what Judd Riker, uh, the main character, he has this idea the US should react quickly, he's got all his data to show it, he's given this fancy new office, and uh, the bureaucracy is having none of it, they're ignoring his ideas. And his first big chance is a coup in Mali, uh, and he's got he's got 100 hours uh, to reverse the coup, uh, to rescue a peace corps volunteer who's been kidnapped, and to stop a terror threat um, against the U.S. embassy in Bamako. So you'll have to read it to find Love out wow. uh, what happens.
0: A novel about dysfunction at the SCRS. That is amazing. <laughs> um, Thank you. Thank you so much, Todd. This was uh, all I expected and more. So uh, again, thank you so much for your time.
1: It was great talking to you, Mark.
0: All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Todd. And you can check out more conversations with foreign policy thought leaders and luminaries. We have a real robust archive we're building. We're now like 56, 57 episodes deep at this point. So check out globaldispatchespodcast.com for previous entries. And these are all kind of evergreen interviews, not necessarily news pegs. You can listen to them at any time at your leisure. We'll see you next time. Bye.